Well, good morning, everyone. What a great video that was. It's always good to see uh, the year-end video for our, 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 our uh, Children's Education Sunday. And uh, it's always good to see the kids and see all the things that they've experienced over the last year. So thank you for that. I know, Mary Lou, you worked hard to put that together and others with photography and everything. Thank you so much for that. It's always, always a great joy to see that on, on a uh, Sunday school celebration Sunday. Uh, before we get too far into the sermon this morning, we have a special message from the kids for you, Mary Lou, Mrs. Menning. So take a look at this. Well, welcome back. Thank you for that. And uh, kids, you did a great job with that. Thank you. And we're excited here at Valley Free. We're excited about our children's ministry. And the elders and I are, are so very, very proud of our, our CE leadership, of Mary Lou and her team of leaders and, and all the people who help work on things. Audrey Benson works hard to lead our Sunday school program. Brittany Haynes leads our, our ministry, our, our nursery ministry. And Martha, Martha Keenan is so very creative with her weekly Bible lesson, and it all builds in. And then, and then there are a host of others who volunteer to teach to shepherd our kids, to staff the nursery, to man children's church. There's so many things that go on and so many people involved and all with a passion to invest in our kids. And we love that about CE Sunday, that we take time to recognize that, to recognize our volunteers and all the effort that goes into it. Parents, we here at Valley Free Church are so very privileged to partner with you in parenting your children and raising them up in the ways of the Lord. It's our privilege to help you lead your kids in their spiritual education and to, and to help them to grow in Christ and, and lead them to that decision that they will each need to make on their own, and that is a decision for Jesus Christ. So thank you, everyone, who pours out your heart, your time, your resources, your energy for the sake of our kids. And as we always like to pray here at Valley Free, we, do, we pray, and, and, and it's our earnest desire that kids, as they grow older, count Valley Free as a key place, place in their spiritual heritage where they learned about Jesus, accepted Christ, and grew strong in their faith. So thank you, everyone, for participating in that. Let me pray as we turn towards God's word this morning. Lord Jesus, we, I, just, I thank you for everyone who has invested in our kids this year, for, for the ministry that we have to our kids and and for the ways that you have led, for the ways that you have empowered our volunteers and our leaders, and you have shown yourself strong. And we do, we, we pray that prayer this morning again, Lord Jesus, that you would, through our energies, through the work of your spirit, through the power of your word, Lord Jesus, that you would work in the hearts of every one of our children. Those who are here, those who are yet to come, I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a place where kids would point back to and say, my spiritual heritage was shaped and formed at Valley Evangelical Free Church. That is our prayer. That is our hope. That is our passion. So, Lord Jesus, as we turn towards your word this morning, it's also our passion to grow closer to you, to understand your word, to dive deep into your word and, and take it into our hearts. So, Lord, mold us and shape us with your word this morning by the power of your spirit. May we all be transformed. May we all continue to grow in you because of our time together here this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Amen. I've been reading a book on heaven recently, and um, it's an amazing picture of heaven and its beauty and all the features that come with, with a, a picture into heaven. And the author of the book goes into great detail on the image of God and, and Jesus, and I appreciate that about the book. They go into the characteristics of who God is and what he does and, and what his holiness looks like and what his throne room looks like and what his presence feels like and, and all the angels around. It's a, it's a vivid description, unlike any I've ever seen. The name of the book is called Nine Days in Heaven, A True Story. And it's a story of Marietta Davis, who had a personal experience in heaven back in the 1800s. Apparently, Marietta was a lukewarm believer when she had this heavenly experience. And I can assure you, she was not a lukewarm believer when she came out of it. Now, usually, I'm pretty skeptical about books that are after-death narratives. So many of them fail to describe God. So many of them fail to, to give a picture of God's holiness. And, and it's just not, it's not accurate. It's not what the scripture says. And so many books out there on this topic, so very few that we can really rely on. And I'd say most of them have weaknesses in their stories. But this one is unlike any I've ever read. It's, it's vivid and it's revealing in its description of Marietta's vision for her time in heaven. One of the aspects that caught my attention in her narrative, in her story, had to do with the topic of holiness that we've been working on in the last weeks. Marietta explained that the deeper into heaven she was escorted and the closer she got to the throne of God, the more her, in, more her sense of, uh, uh, the more intense her sense of unworthiness became. The more her sin began to just bubble to the surface in her life. She described every thought she ever had is becoming like a billboard in her mind. Her whole life, including her thoughts, was, was laid bare as she, as she entered into the holiness of heaven and the holiness of the presence of God. And on the flip side, an angel guided her to the precipice of hell. She saw firsthand the suffering of those who had rejected God. The descriptions, descriptions of what she saw cut me to the heart. Her response to all of that scene was to reel in horror and to long to get back to the paradise of heaven. At the same time, her own personal sin, and this was part of the calling to, of, of hell and its inhabitants, they, they kept calling out to her. It, it made her doubt her own worthiness to return to heaven. And the voices from the abyss, from the pit, kept calling out to her, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. Your sin is too vivid. Now there's so much more to the story. But my desire here is to highlight the importance of this topic of holiness in our own lives. When the Apostle Peter called us to be holy as God is holy, it's in view of preparing us to experience heaven ourselves. The inheritance of heaven that Peter talks about in the first chapter of his, of his letter. He also called us, as we have seen in the last couple of weeks, he's called us to be holy as we intentionally grow in Christ, as we grow in his truth, as we grow in his grace, and we, and we strike out in our own obedience to what God has called us to be about. So in our approach to this topic of personal holiness, we've acknowledged that, well, like Marietta Davis, 
we feel increasingly unworthy of the pursuit and our, and our identity in holiness. You see, just like Marietta, the closer we get to God, the more vivid our sin becomes. And the more we long to draw close to God, the more intense our struggle with sin becomes. Paul describes it in Romans 7 when he cries out, for I, I don't understand my own actions. For I, I, I don't do the things that I want and I do the very thing that I hate. And Paul in that same chapter later bursts out in frustration, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think we can relate to the Apostle Paul. And I often say, you know, if the Apostle Paul struggled with that, who am I to think that I'm not going to struggle with that? Who am I to think that I'm above that kind of a struggle? Yes, we all can relate to that struggle. And in our struggle against sin and our striving to be holy as God has called us to, to be and do, it always seems to me like it's three steps forward and it's two steps back. Or maybe the other way around. We gain ground in overcoming sin only to realize that we need to learn the lesson all over again. And that's where we come to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Peter says this, having purified your souls for your obedience to the truth. We'll read that in, in a couple minutes in a little more detail, but it's interesting to note that Peter began chapter 1 by explaining that we have been born again to a living hope. We're learning that we've been ransomed, that we've been transferred into life in Christ Jesus. We're called to become more and more like him. Peter expressed God's command that we be holy as God is holy. And that's the process that God has each of us in, transforming our lives to live in his abundance today transforming our lives to spend eternity in his holy presence. But, brothers and sisters, let's, let's just be honest. Let's acknowledge this together. It's also the struggle, a daily struggle with an unseen enemy by the name of sin. And we need to understand both the enemy and the struggle if we hope to experience the overcoming and the victory over sin that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. So today, I want to go deeper. I, I want to go on a deeper dive to understand the struggle against sin and to understand the process of becoming holy that God has at work in us. We need to energize the, the, the living hope for this battle. We need to know what the Holy Spirit is using in our lives to accomplish his work in our lives. I don't believe there's anyone listening who can't say amen to needing help for this daily we all long to overcome. And by the Holy Spirit's power, we can grow stronger in our faith. That's the longing of our heart. So let me read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. That's our text for today. Listen to this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. But the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. 
Amen. I'd like to concentrate today on the first part of verse 22. Having purified your souls for you, by your obedience to the truth. Let's start by looking at this unseen enemy that we've talked about. In this discussion about becoming holy, Peter acknowledges that this is a process. He says, having purified your souls. Now that could refer to the moment of salvation because indeed salvation is, is there is a sense of, of a one-time legal transfer, transaction that transfers our lives, that ransoms our lives into God's kingdom. It's a one-time transaction. We are made new. And in that moment, we are made children of God. And, that, and, and in that moment, yes, we're called holy. We are made holy when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's a one-time transaction. But Peter adds, by your obedience to the truth, that's a commitment on our part. We're partnering with God's spirit to, to build out this faith that he has implanted in us, this hope that he's given to us. This process of renewal has its launch in the moment we give our lives to Christ, but the growth of it occurs daily over the course of our lifetime. So as you obey the truth of God, his life is worked out in you, in us. The Apostle Paul explains it like this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. That's in Romans chapter 7. So as I thought about this struggle and this battle, I struggled with how to express it. So I don't want to overstate the issue, but neither do I want to infuse the conversation with defeat from the start. But the reality is that the working out of our faith, our living hope, our living hope in Christ, it's a battle. That's the first word that came to my mind. It's a battle. It's a battle for your loyalty. Peter knows this better than anyone. There was an incident between Peter and Jesus in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus said to, to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, we don't often comprehend this, but the struggle with sin is also a spiritual battle for your commitment to faith. To Christ, will you stand in the moment of testing? That's our loyalty. Satan will do all he can to deter your loyalty to Christ. That's what he did to Peter, and he'll do it to us as well. Another word to describe this process is, is not simply battle, but it's also the word test. You see, the tension between sin and holiness is a test for our obedience to the truth of God. And Peter will explain that later in God's, worth, God's word. God's word is eternal. God's truth is eternal. It's, it's unchanging and it's an anchor for our faith and for our life. The struggle we have between sin and holiness is a battle for our obedience to God's truth. Another word that I thought to use, battle, test, another word would be the idea of struggle. The tension between sin and holiness is a struggle for our discipline. It's a struggle for our conviction and our commitment. And again, Peter knows all about this. He's the one who famously boasted that he would never leave Jesus. He would never abandon Jesus. And then 
And then if you remember the story of just a few hours later, Jesus foretold this. Peter denied Christ three times. You see, our struggle with sin and holiness is a struggle of discipline. It's a struggle of commitment. It's a struggle of leaning into God's word, God's truth, God's life, and, and leaning into it and saying, I will stand in the way of the Lord. So how would you describe this process in our lives? At times we see God's presence and work and we stand amazed at the transformation. At other times, we have to cry out like Paul did in Romans chapter 7, why do I do what I don't want to do? So let's take a little closer look at this enemy of sin. How does it work to frustrate our attempts in obedience to God's word in his calling? In his classic work, and I mean that, a classic work on this topic of holiness called the pursuit of holiness, Jerry Bridges gives us three ways that sin seemingly lies in wait at every corner in our lives. See, the first thing we need to understand about sin is that, that it resides in our heart. Now, that can be confusing to us because we know that Christ has saved us. We know that we're born again to a living home. We know that when we, when we place our faith in him, our lives are transformed, we're forgiven, we're saved. We know that he has conquered sin we know that in him we are set free from slavery to sin. So why? What, what is it that we say that sin lives in our heart? You see, the power of sin is broken in the cross of Christ. The work that Jesus did on the cross in giving his life for us. The power of sin is broken. As a result of that, we now have the freedom. We now have the wisdom. We now have the opportunity. We now have the strength to say to sin, to say no to sin. But sin is still in our lives. Sin is still living in our heart. Sin, death, and Satan won't actually be put away until the end of the age. We can read about that in Revelation. But until then, until Satan, sin, and death are locked away forever, until that, the tension between God's holiness and his work in our life and the influence of sin goes on. And unless Jesus comes before the end of our lives, that tension, that struggle, that battle, that test is going to go on for all of our life. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus explained that it isn't food that defiles a person. He explained that food goes through the mouth and into the stomach. That's, that's not what, what corrupts a person, defiles a person. Jesus goes on to explain that what defiles a person is actually what comes out of the heart, the place where sin resides, where sin hides as an unseen enemy. Jesus goes on to explain that evil thoughts, immorality, theft, envy, adultery, pride, coveting, foolishness, and a whole list of other things, they all come from the heart where sin resides, where the unseen enemy resides. The prophet Jeremiah gives us a vivid description of the human heart. He says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? He goes on to say, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. A 
vivid description indeed. Deceitful, desperately sick. We can't get around it. That's where salvation comes in. You see, brothers and sisters, we need a heart transplant. The Holy Spirit does that at the moment of salvation. He gives us a new heart that can receive, a new heart that is, that is, that is equipped and prepared, malleable so that God's Spirit can work, so that you can receive not only salvation, but you can receive God's truth, God's grace, God's life. The Spirit also directs the transforming of the heart. The training that goes on in us, that's the process, the training that enables us to hear God's voice, to respond to God's truth, to respond to his grace. And that battle takes place in our hearts. So the second thing we need to know about this process and tension is that sin works in our passion. James writes in his letter, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, passion. Desire can lead us around like a horse on a lead if we let it, but we can be driven by our wants and our desires. And it's easy to spot that in our toddlers as they demand their way and stop their feet and, and are led by whatever shiny object happens to be in front of them. But we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't recognize, if we just didn't admit that those same impulses, they live in our adult hearts as well. The bottom line of this is that the battle between, is that this is a battle between reason and passion, desire. Have you ever wondered why there is such a gulf of disagreement over those who say our sexuality is determined biology, by by. by by biology and those who say they can choose their gender, that it's fluid. Why is there such a, a, a large gulf of misunderstanding, miscommunication on that particular topic? And for most of us, that defies logic. To say that our gender is fluid and we can move around from this to that gender defies logic. It defies reason. It defies science that we we, we so much want to put emphasis on. What's the reason for that? The reason is because it's a war between reason and passion. Pursuing passion, being driven by a passion, often leads us to throw over reason. Now, of course, not all passion leads us away from God's truth. Some passion is good. Passion for your spouse is good. Passion to do well at school or work is good. On most Sundays, as I head out for church, when, when we're allowed to go to church, Sandy will holler at me out the door, when you're preaching today, have passion. That kind of passion is good. Passion to love God, that's the highest good. You see, deciphering our passion boils down to what our passion is directed at. If our passion is to please God, that's holiness, then our passion is leading us towards him. If it's not to please God, it's leading us away from him. The third aspect of sin that, that we need to understand is that it seeks to deceive our minds and our reasoning. We saw this in the Garden of Eden. 
when Satan approached Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3, he said, he made statements like, did God really say? You see, his objective was then, and it still is today, to distort God's word, to destroy God, to distort God's truth, to distort his plan for our lives, to take us any, any old direction, any logic, any reason, any, 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 any process that we go through in our mind, he wants to distort that to lead us away from God. And so what does he do? He attacks our ability to discern God's truth. He, he attacks our ability to, to, to reason toward holiness. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul tells us that, that our former lives were corrupted by, listen to this, deceitful desires. He calls us in the same verse, rather, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. He says that, he says something similar to that in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind in order to discern the will of God. You see, the process of transformation, of growing in holiness, is one of renewing our minds. Satan's pushback to that is to wreak havoc with deception. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 2 goes, goes to in great length to tell us about the last days, which I believe we're living in now, the last generation. Satan, the lawless one, will be unleashed in full fury. And for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, those who do not lean into Jesus Christ for their salvation, for their life, a strong delusion, the scripture says, 1 Thessalonians 2 a strong delusion will come so they will believe anything that's contrary to God's truth. And you don't have to read many headlines today to realize that this delusion, that this deception is in full operation in our cultures today. And for the church and those who call on Christ, we can be deceived also into false doctrines, false understandings of what God is, what he's telling us. We can be deceived into false images of God and his truth, false ideas about his calling for our, for our lives, his purpose for us. By way of example, the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, the new apostolic reformation are but a few of the ways the gospel is being significantly distorted in our day. So is it any wonder then that we face a struggle in this call to holiness? Praise the Lord that we have the living hope. We have the truth of the gospel. We have the power of Christ's resurrection working in us. Or we'd be left in the dilemma that Paul shouts about, that he pointed out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, sin seems to be crouching in wait at every corner. Let's go on. Second part of verse 22. And look at the fruit of the battle. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So if we were to, if we were to leave our conversation at this point, there'd be no hope. We've all struggled with sin enough to know that we just can't overcome it on our own. But Peter's writing this letter, 1 Peter, to, to help us to, to, to be reminded about hope, our living hope. 
in Jesus Christ. He's also writing to remind us, he says this in the last few verses of his letter, he's also writing this letter to remind us of the true grace of God. He doesn't want, does not want to leave us in this place of hopelessness. He wants rather to give us hope in Jesus Christ. You see, if there's no evidence of transformation, if there's no weapon, if there's no strength from God for this battle, then we are indeed lost. But the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us to overcome the strategies and the effects of sin. Continuing on in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 22, 1 Peter 1, 22, Peter tells us that this transformation should result in a genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can read this as a command, and indeed it is. But it's also one of the most vivid ways we see the power of the Holy Spirit work in us in the renewal of our relationships. I'm thinking that Peter gives it to us as a picture of transformation. It's part of the hope. Peter may be saying to us that the transformation is possible and that the believer need not live in discouragement. After all, if our thoughts, our attitudes, and our behaviors towards others is radically transformed, then God can do anything. Then the transformation is real. And the evidence for it is the way we treat one another. When Sandy and I went to, the, to live in Romania and to work with a, a group of missionaries together for the sake of planting churches in Romania, one of the things that I was intrigued by was the fact that here are 50 people, kids and adults, 50 people gathered together from all walks of life, from all kinds of different churches, from all across America. One person was even from Canada. Come from all different parts of life, all different backgrounds, and yet we were expected to work together. And we were at, at, at just put in, this, put in this place, in this ministry contact, and told to get along and to work together. You see, only by the grace of God can that happen. Only by the grace of God can we gather together on a Sunday morning. That's, I guess, what I just said is more true than ever. But for all of us, from all different walks of life, from all different kinds of families and, 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 and contexts for life, different attitudes and different perspectives on life, and every, everything is different as we gather together as believers. But what holds us together? It's the union that we enjoy in the, in the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's working in us. And he's the one that's, that's knitting our hearts together. He's the one that makes us long for one another's company. You see, Peter is telling us that, that purify your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You see, that's the evidence that, that the, the transforming power of God is at work in us. And I think Peter is reminding us in this struggle, in this battle, in this test that we face day in and day out with this unseen enemy, the proof of it is in, the, is in our relationships, our fellowship. You want to see God at work? Look at the people around you. And on this CE Sunday, I, I, I think about all the, all the people that have invested in our kids. You see, that's a passion that's directed at our kids at supporting our families. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God has been at work transforming lives, giving a single, singular passion to invest in kids for the sake of the gospel. 
That's a transformed life. That's a transformed heart. You see, Peter is giving us this picture of relationships because he wants us to know that transformation is possible. That in our relationships, in our transformation, the Holy Spirit working us, God can do anything. Now, this is an unlimited number of ways that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. Between all of us that are listening here, we could come up with quite a list of the ways that God has worked in our lives. But Peter seems to highlight our love for others. And as you think about it, as you consider this idea, we're created for community. God has hardwired us to need one another. And that's, that's a huge factor in our current shelter-in-place situation. We are missing others. One of my frustrations with the latest government announcement is the, the seeming disregard for the place of the church in our communities, in our culture. We're not like a sporting event. We're not like some entertainment venue. We're a place where this genuine fellowship occurs. Fellowship with other believers. Fellowship centered around the Holy Spirit. And it's a, it's a fellowship that is, that is offered out to our community, for the citizens of our community. All of that context of fellowship and relationship is why the church is vital to the health of a city or an area. You see, when a genuine, transparent, and earnest love and concern for others wells up in us, it's a sign that God is powerfully at work in our hearts and our lives. One more thing. Peter turns the corner in verse 23 and he says, you have, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, other than the Holy Spirit himself, the next powerful weapon that we have in this battle is the word of God. When we come to Christ, it's because, it's because a truth of scripture captures our heart. As we walk out our faith daily, it's the word of God and the spirit that that the Spirit uses to lead us, to encourage us, to give us strength, and to assure us of the promises of God. The Word of God is the very heart and the very breath of God. Listen to these familiar truths. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Listen to this from 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, a familiar verse to many of us. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I love Joshua 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And finally, Romans 1.16 says this, I love this verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. P 
Peter reminds us in his letter that we've been born again. And this time he attributes it to the power of God in his word. Note what he says about it. The word is living and abiding. It's living because it's at work in us. It's being used by the spirit to lead us to God's truth, to God's heart. And it's abiding because it resides in us and it's eternal. It's never changing. We can throw out the anchor on the word of God and stake our lives on it. You see, a follower of Christ who's not operating in the power of the spirit nor, of the, hope, nor, nor the hope of faith and let me start over again. If a follower of Christ is not operating in the word of God, is not, the word of God is not living or abiding in their life, then the Holy Spirit is likely not at work. By contrast, when the word of God is the meditation of our heart, when the word of God is, is the first word that comes out of our mouth, and when the word of God is the very foundation for our promises in faith, then we will experience the purification and the transformation of our souls that Peter describes. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? It seems to me that in this battle or this test or this struggle or whatever label we want to put on it, we can suffer from some extremes in this conversation. One extreme is that we would be overwhelmed and powerless. We can look at this tension between sin and holiness and we can get lost in discouragement. We can, this, this attitude can cause us to throw in the flag of surrender, to quit the fight. The danger of that is losing our hope in God, that our faith wanes, and that we cede territory to the evil one. It would seem to me to be an indicator that we're placing our hope in our own strength and not turning to the power of the Spirit and the truth of the Word for the struggle. In his book that I mentioned earlier, The Pursuit of Holiness, Jerry Bridges makes the observation that many times, many times we, we place the emphasis on our victory over sin. Now that may sound a little strange, but in the context of 1 Peter chapter 1, it seems that, the, that our focus should be on pleasing God and less about the victory. You see, if my focus is on the victory, then it's my focus is on what I can do and what I, what I can't do and, and, and the things that I will strive to do. And yes, we're in partnership with the Holy Spirit. But my, my passion, my motivation, my desire is to please God. And if he calls me to be holy as he is holy, then my desire is to just become holy. And so my view of sin is not simply personal victory, but my view of sin is this doesn't belong to God. This is not pleasing to God. Therefore, I will throw it over. Therefore, I will go in this direction. Therefore, I'll make decisions based not on what's good for me and not what, not what I can overcome, but what God wants for me. The second extreme that I think we can come in contact with is our is pride in our own confidence. You see, we assume that we'll, we'll never get trapped in a particular sin. We often say to ourselves, I can't believe that that guy struggles with this or that. I can't believe that that guy put his foot in that trap. I can't believe that guy fell for that. I would never let that happen to me. We need to remember that sin 
is always crouching at the door and that none of us are exempt. Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2 are very clear about that, that we're to help others when they stumble and fall and sin. We're to help recover them, help them to be restored. But we need to be careful ourselves that we don't fall into the same pit. You see, your struggle may not be the same as what other people are dealing with, but it's a battle. You see, for all of us, sin is just one mouse click away. It's one foolish decision away. It's one foul word or one rash action away from us. We need the Spirit and we need the Word to keep us humble and diligent in this struggle. The third thing, the third extreme I think we fall into is that we abuse the grace of God. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We all have it. We all deal with the issue of the unseen enemy. But we can also presume on the grace of God. Yes, God forgives us if we truly come to him in repentance. And, and we learn from the Gospels that even, even seven, seven, 70 times 70 times he will, he'll forgive us. And if he didn't forgive us, if, he, if that option wasn't there for us, heaven help us all. We'd all be hopelessly lost. But if I go on sinning, and I'm presuming that tomorrow morning I'll just wake up and I'll ask God to forgive me, therefore I can just go on sinning tonight, then I'm abusing his grace. If I say I'll just continue down this road because things are too difficult, things are too hard, the implications of changing it is, is, is I just can't do that. I'll just ask God for forgiveness later. Then we're presuming on his grace. Paul, very, Paul is very clear, we are not to carry on sinning so that grace can abound. Another aspect of this is that in our struggle to grow in holiness, we need a foundation that is sure and eternal. If your strength, your passions, and your resources are all right around you, if they're just your own means, if they're at your disposal, then you don't have the right weapons for this fight. You don't have weapons that will last into eternity. And that's why Peter went into relationships and the word. These are eternal. God's word connects us with eternal truths and power. God's word, along with his Holy Spirit, connects us between the temporal, between our lives today, our battle today, and the eternal truths that he has for us, the eternal promises that he has for us, the eternal life that he has for us. God's word connects us to those things. And then relationships are eternal because they're evidence of God's transforming power, God's transforming holiness in our lives. You see, our passions need to be directed toward God in these areas, in our relationships, in, in, in his word. That's where our passions need to be directed. And so today, brothers and sisters, we need to take time to allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. That's what we read in Jeremiah a little earlier. Psalm 139 says, that, Search our hearts, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me, if there's any way that doesn't belong to God. Ask God to search your heart today. Ask God to help you understand where your passions lie. Is your passion, is your passion focused on your own strength and your own energy and your own wisdom? Is your passion focused on the things around you? Is, is your passion focused on more money, more this, more that, little this? Your passion needs to be directed at God, at his word, at relationships around us.
Ask God to review where your passion lies. And then, brothers and sisters, this is a call. This is a call. When, when God does reveal something to you, when, when something surfaces in your life, a sin that needs to be dealt with, that's the Holy Spirit at work. And what's my response? My response is that I need to act on it. The Spirit is bringing it to the surface so that I can repent of it, that I can confess it. it means I agree with God that this doesn't belong to Him. And then I repent of it. That means I turn and go a different direction. I turn away from it and I turn towards God. And then I move forward in the, in the forgiveness and the new life and the purity that God offers me. That's how we respond. Brothers and sisters, the battle is real. The enemy is unseen. But the power of God has overcome. May that be true in your life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of the cross. In all of eternity, in all of heaven, the cross is central because that's where you, the Lamb of God, gave your life, suffered on our behalf because of this problem, the unseen enemy of sin. It has been defeated because of you. And we live in power. We live in, in, in overcoming because of who you are. So Lord Jesus, for all who are in the, in the sound of my voice this morning, I pray that we would experience this power to overcome, that we would not walk in defeat with sin, but rather we would turn to your word, we would turn to your Holy Spirit to lead us into your presence, to lead us in, in your power and your strength, to lead us in your wisdom. And Lord, when we fall, may we fall into your grace, not to presume on it, but to, but to take in the riches of your grace and walk in newness of Lord, thank you for the promise of victory in our struggle. May it be said of us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as we always say, on your way rejoicing.